0: Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC
1: World Service are supported by advertising.
2: Timeless stories, exceptional storytellers. Discover all your favourite BBC radio dramas available to enjoy as audiobooks. John Moffat stars in Poirot's Finest Cases, a collection of gripping full-cast dramatisations based on the novels by Agatha Christie.
3: And what would be your ideal murder mystery,
2: Poirot? A very simple crime. A crime with no complications. A crime that was unimpassioned and teem. Search for BBC Audio wherever you purchase audiobooks and start listening.
0: Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service. I'm Kavita Puri, with Three Million. The story of the three million people who died in the devastating famine in Bengal in British India during World War II.
3: When Ian Stevens wanted to clear his head, he went for a cycle. I'd um, strip right off. I'd wear nothing but a pair of shorts, uh, khaki shorts and a uh, singlet, and uh, chapplis let's say, uh, Indian sandals and a wristwatch.
0: In August 1943, he had a lot on his mind. On sticky monsoon mornings, he left his modest bachelor pad, ran down two flights of stairs and jumped on his bike to
3: work. It was about a mile along this admirable broad uh, street uh, to my office. Well, it was a lot of fun. One got sunshine and fresh air on an almost naked body.
0: Cycling behind him was Rahim, his trusted servant, carrying his freshly ironed office clothes in a box
3: strapped to the bike carrier. And one got exercise, which, working as I then in wartime, had to do often about 14 hours a day. was a difficult thing to contrive. And one had um, a minimum of sweat. Listen to him. He sounds pucker, a
0: part of the colonial establishment. But Stevens wasn't entirely conventional. Not only did he cycle half-naked, he was also addicted to yoga. And after 20 years in India, he had close Indian friends, a rarity back then. The office he was cycling to was of the Statesman, the most widely read English-language newspaper in India. Stevens was the editor. In the middle of a war, it was a tough job.
3: The, um, the circumstances when I was editor were harsh. There were wartime circumstances, all edges to controversy, all moral judgments were, were harder, rougher, quicker.
0: That summer, he was facing the biggest moral judgment of his career, maybe even his life. Famine was sweeping through Bengal. People were dying on the same streets he cycled on, but officially, The colonial government denied there was a famine and the wartime censor made sure his paper didn't mention it. Was his job to support Britain's war effort or was it to report what was really going on? Once in the office, he sponged himself down and put on the bush shirt and trousers his servant Rahim had pressed for him. Ian Stevens was ready for work. It was a problem for the colonial authorities that famine was visible on the streets. They were worried that Britain's enemies, the Germans and the Japanese, could use it as propaganda against them.
3: So the sensibility, I think, is that if you can erase the spectacle of famine from the streets of Calcutta, you can censor the famine itself.
0: Historian Janam Mukherjee. At the end of July 1943, the colonial government introduced a new law.
3: So there was something called the Bengal Vagrancy Act, and that was to remove the vagrants from the streets of Calcutta. By August of 1943, they were collecting as many as a 1,000 bodies a day from the streets of Calcutta.
0: And it wasn't just the spectacle of human suffering that was erased. Publication of the word famine was strictly prohibited under the government of India's emergency rules. For most of the war, the statesmen had towed the line and supported the government. But by monsoon season of 1943, Stevens was restless. He spoke about his time in India in an interview with the BBC in the 1970s. In the near two-hour conversation, there isn't a single question about the famine. Stevens mentions it once, unprompted.
3: I really have very few visual memories of uh, what was uh, certainly the worst horror of all in terms of death and suffering, that is to say, of the Bengal famine. And I was deeply, profoundly bestirred in my, so to speak, humanitarian aspect.
0: In August 1943, Stevens wrote an editorial blaming the grave situation on the Indian provincial government and the colonial government in Delhi but he was frustrated. It wasn't getting much pick-up by the authorities or the international press. Mortality figures in Calcutta were rising, and Stevens was receiving reports of widespread starvation in the surrounding countryside.
3: I felt a sense of outrage at the appalling suffering which was occurring and the inertia of the government in coping with it.
0: tracing Stevens' story, it's easy to see how the silence around the famine started. The millions of British subjects who died were poor and lived in remote areas of Bengal. Most were not part of the wartime effort. Their suffering was easier for authorities to overlook. But as the death rate rose, particularly in Calcutta, where soldiers, colonial officials, and the Indian elite... Could see the devastation in plain sight, it became impossible to ignore. And while Stevens contemplated whether to challenge the censor, there was an entirely different censorship battle taking place somewhere else, in the monitoring of letters sent to and from soldiers on the front line. The enormity of what was happening was getting harder and harder to contain.
4: So, wartime letters are always censored during the Second World War.
0: Dear Gupta is a lecturer in public history at City University of London.
4: You can't have soldiers writing to family members at home, giving away troop locations, giving away sort of military strategies, because these letters might fall into the hands of, you know, the Axis forces. But the more sort of sophisticated point around this sort of censorship was not to let all the distressing information from home reach soldiers' ears.
0: The censor was particularly vigilant about Indian soldiers.
4: Because India is going through this massive crisis in confronting colonial authority during the 1940s, and then you have something like the famine happening in 1943, it becomes really important for colonial censors to keep a watch on how their men are behaving and feeling and what they are being told.
0: Deer went through the military censorship reports archived in the British Library she was looking at correspondence between Indian soldiers in the Middle East and North Africa and their families back home. These letters were seized for the British censor to read. And in the letters that you looked at, is it fair to say that was the kind of one thread during that time period? That was the thing that dominated the letters? The
4: letters are just dominated by famine.
0: Reading these letters today is extraordinary. It shows the strength of emotion The colonial censor was intercepting.
4: I mean, one of the most moving letters that I found, Kavita, was actually by a Havildar, or a junior officer, in the Indian Army. And I'll I'll read it out to you. He says, Whenever I sit for my meals, a dreadful picture of the appalling Indian food problem passes through my mind, leaving a cloudy sediment on the walls of my heart which makes me nauseous, and often I leave my meals untouched. Every time he sits to eat, it's like the spectre of famine hovers before him, and he can't eat. Can you imagine what it must have felt like being in the archive and finding hundreds of these extracts of letters? It just opened up a whole other world to me, this layered, textured world, In which soldiers were empathizing with famine. People across the country, not from Bengal, were empathizing and talking about famine.
0: And as Dear went through the archives, another unexpected story began to emerge. She noticed how these letters affected the very same British colonial censor who was deleting information from them. He would write reports about the material he was
4: reading. So towards the end of 1942, when letters have started coming in saying something bad is happening at home, the censor just appears a bit disbelieving. He's very dismissive. And you know, his attitude is, home front is always going to have problems. But then there's a change in tone. It's mid-1943. And This colonial censor, who's excising words written by Indian families to their loved ones on the battlefront and vice versa. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't even know how to manage this this avalanche of despair. In a
0: report, he writes...
4: I'm failing my role in some ways because I can't clamp down on all this information. There are too many letters. Some of them will inevitably get through. He says, deletion from such letters presents problems which a humane censor finds very difficult. Gosh. And this is a high-ranking British colonial officer saying... So he was touched. He himself is touched. And he is saying, how can I do this job in the face of such appalling catastrophe? I can't delete what's in these letters. And I think it would have taken a lot for a British colonial officer to have officially noted this in a report. And that's important to say, isn't it? It's not what he felt. He
0: is actually writing this for other people perhaps back home to read.
4: Absolutely. He is writing this as his official response. When you found that, what what was that like for you? I think that was, you know, a pen dropping moment for me, really, because... I hadn't expected that. I hadn't expected that reading about famine would make a colonial censor question what he did for the war effort.
0: 80 years on from the famine, these emotions are only just being uncovered in the archives. In these typewritten military reports, there's the sense that there's too much feeling here, for the colonial censor to suppress. Despite his qualms, there's no sense it prevented him from doing his job. But Ian Stevens, the editor of The Statesman, was prepared to put his job on the line in August 1943. Hamstrung by censorship rules,
1: he knew he had to do something different. So the press advisor to the government would monitor the publications.
0: Joanna Simenow is a historian at the South Asia Institute of Heidelberg University.
1: And they were not allowed to use the word famine. But there was a loophole in the guidelines that the censor used. The loophole
0: was that while the censor's guidelines said the word famine couldn't be mentioned in writing, there was nothing about photos.
1: So it would only talk about words, but it would simply not make any statements about photographs. So the statesman then decided to use this loophole and just try what the censor would do if it would publish pictures or try to publish pictures of famine.
0: It was risky. Not everyone on the statesman believed it was a good idea. Ian Stevens' thoughts at this point are unfortunately not recorded in that 1970s interview. In his memoir, however, he says he knew he had to do something. He would have felt ashamed if he hadn't. So Stephen sent out two photographers onto the streets of Calcutta.
1: It only took a couple of hours for them to return with very drastic images. And then they had a discussion about what kind of images they should actually publish.
0: On August 22nd, 1943, Stevens published the pictures. They were shocking. In one image, a young mother is lying on the pavement, cradling a child. In the background is an emaciated man. It's unclear if they're alive.
1: It was a Sunday when they were published and you have the Sunday crossword on the right side of the picture. So I I can imagine how readers of the Statesman would just go through the paper looking for the crossword and then um, come across these images.
0: Newspapers flew off the stands in Delhi and Calcutta the chief press advisor in Delhi called the statesman to give the paper a piece of his mind. But there wasn't much he could do. They hadn't technically broken the censorship rules. Stevens was now emboldened. The following Sunday, he published more photos, this time with a scathing editorial. He didn't mention the F word, but he was pushing it as far as he could. On August the 29th, he wrote thoughtful Britons must realise that so long as their nation, their parliament and their Secretary of State maintain some responsibility for India's welfare, the ultimate blame unavoidably rests upon themselves. Now, Indian papers
1: around Bengal started
0: publishing images of the famine too.
1: So it really kind of destroyed the censor at that time. At that moment, it was not possible anymore to uh, keep a lid on what was happening in Bengal. And because the statesman was simultaneously published in Delhi and um, it was circulating internationally, you then also have a response um, to these images beyond Bengal and even beyond India at that time.
0: This is the documentary from the BBC World Service, about the 3 million people who died in the Bengal famine 80 years ago.
5: This is the story of the charismatic Nigerian preacher TB Joshua. Some called him a miracle worker.
3: He healed the sick, the lame walked. a great man of God.
5: Others say they knew a very different man.
4: He's not this holy man. What happened to me and to others shouldn't happen to any human being.
5: This is World of Secrets from the BBC World Service. Season 2, The Disciples. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get
2: your BBC podcasts. Timeless stories, exceptional storytellers. Discover all your favourite BBC radio dramas available to enjoy as audiobooks. John Moffat stars in Poirot's Finest Cases... A collection of gripping, full-cast dramatisations based on the novels by Agatha Christie.
3: And what would be your ideal murder mystery, Poirot? A very simple crime. A crime with no complications.
2: A crime that was unimpassioned and teem. Search for BBC Audio wherever you purchase audiobooks and start listening.
0: Stevens's campaign lasted two months. By September, in his editorials, he was calling the disaster a man-made famine. And now that reports of mass starvation were emerging, other British news organisations began to respond. The Sunday Pictorial, which would become the Sunday Mirror, made it clear that those dying on Calcutta's streets were British subjects. And Stevens's campaign reached the BBC too. By mid-September, it was broadcasting that famine conditions were evident in parts of Bengal. Audio recordings of their broadcasts no longer exist, but there are transcripts of the news bulletins. The growing coverage of the famine was bringing the BBC into conflict with the government. So here we are, the Written Archive Centre for the BBC. <laughs> it's a very sweet... Little bungalow uh, in Caversham, which is not far from Reading.
5: Hello. My name is Kate O'Brien. Um, I'm an archivist here at the BBC Written Archive Centre in Caversham.
0: Oh, look at this! It smells very archiving. Yeah, <laughs> it
5: does. That's the, I think the first thing that hits you is the kind of the smell of, of the books and things like that. Here we are, R34 policy.
0: What Kate is finding me are memos and letters between the BBC and the government during the Second World War. Look at this. Telegrams, um, letters on thin paper. I mean, they're yellow now, kind of nicotine-coloured. It will take a while to get through all of these. The folders are a goldmine. There are communications between the British government's India office, based in London, and the BBC's Director General, as well as different BBC employees, including Rushbrook Williams, the Director of the BBC's Eastern Service. Famine is never named. Rather, it's called the India food question. Many of the most heated exchanges take place from late September. Now, this is a really key letter here. It's delivering a message from... Mr. Amory, who is Leo Amory, the Secretary of State for India. And he tells Rushbrook, Amory is somewhat concerned at the treatment which has been given over the last few days in the home news to the India food question. And what then comes next is quite an extraordinary request really and I quote here, he is asked to see the text of what has been included in the various bulletins on this subject and I would be grateful therefore if you could arrange to send me at the earliest possible moment all references back to and including Saturday September the 18th. Just A few weeks after Stephen's reporting, the letter says, and I quote, I should have thought that it was hardly necessary from the strictly news angle to keep this subject in the forefront in so sustained a way. Clearly, Leo Amory, the Secretary of State for India, and the government were very, very concerned about the British public knowing about what was happening. And they're clearly not afraid to put pressure on the BBC from reporting it in a prominent way. The BBC's Rush Williams responded by sending the bulletins Amory had asked for, but he wasn't happy about it, saying it left him distressed. The BBC in wartime was operating under very different conditions to peacetime. It was partly a tool for propaganda and took guidance from the Ministry of Information. So it wasn't just with the Bengal famine that these types of demands were made. It was for other stories that might put Britain in a bad light or be damaging to morale, such as the number of fatalities. But looking through the news bulletins from late October with archivist Kate O'Brien, we noticed something.
5: This is a script that would have gone out on air. This one particularly is for the 9pm bulletin. It's a mix of home news, so sort of British-based, and then kind of what was happening on the home fronts, and then sort of more overseas news as well.
0: And this is crucially after that Amory letter? This is
5: after that Amory letter, after the complaint from the India office. They talk about what can be done to relieve the famine in the province, and then it goes down and there's a whole paragraph cut out which talks about people still dying in the streets from starvation deaths in hospital averaging 100 a day this is all cut from the uh, home news bulletin they don't allow this to be broadcast nothing else has been crossed out or redacted so i mean draw your own conclusions from that i think
0: Clearly, someone was going to read this script out. They've underlined words that they want to emphasise. They've changed words. And somebody
5: has, has subsequently crossed it out. You could potentially think that it was an editorial decision, but I couldn't. you couldn't say for sure. You can never know with these things. It, we can't go back and see what they've been discussing.
0: It could have been cut for other reasons, such as for time. But out of 18 pages of this news bulletin... It's only these paragraphs detailing the worst of what was happening in Calcutta that had been crossed out, most likely from someone at the BBC. And they come in the weeks after that pointed exchange between the broadcaster and the India office. By October, the British government admitted in Parliament the food problem in Calcutta. The F-word was now being mentioned.
1: You had a debate in the House of Commons where the um, Secretary of State for India, um, Leo Amory, He was no longer able to deny famine, and he had to uh, confess that there was a menace of famine. And just weeks later, he tried to address his constituency in Sparkbrook, uh, Birmingham, and wasn't able to do so. He had to leave under police protection because of an angry group of South Asian laborers, dock workers, sailors, and said, Amory is killing a man and uh, killing women and children in India at the time.
0: Amartya Sen, who we heard from in the last episode, was then living in Shantinikathan, a hundred miles outside Calcutta. His family read The Statesman.
4: The Statesman was, for the first time, saying there are hundreds of thousands of people dying and how could the government in Westminster deny that?
0: Do you think that was a turning point for the British government?
4: Yes, it was. The British, they were introducing a system of rationing so that people don't starve. The contrast with that humanitarian attempt in in England with the let the devil take the worst attitude in, in India was extraordinary. And I think the result was impossibly unacceptable to the English public as well.
0: Do you think that Ian Stevens' intervention saved lives?
4: Oh, yeah. Lots of lives.
0: By the end of the year, government relief efforts would be accelerated. Amartya would write a letter to the Times on Stevens' death in 1984, saying he'd possibly saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Looking back on that time, Stevens was proud of what he'd done, and of the appreciation he received when he visited the capital of Bangladesh, formerly East Bengal, years later.
3: I look upon it as uh, perhaps the most satisfactory thing I ever did in my life. Unquestionably, I saved many Bengali lives, and I had the astonishing experience when arriving at Dhaka of uh, finding, awaiting me on the airport, and uh, I was deeply, profoundly touched Four Bengali officials, elderly ones, who said, Mr. Stevens, don't be alarmed. Um, We've come here to greet you because we don't forget what the Statesman under your charge did to help us Bengalis in our time of trouble in 1943.
0: Stevens is right to take pride in what he did. But when I look closely at the Statesman photographs published at that time, there's no sense of who these suffering individuals were. Maybe the photographer never asked, or perhaps they were too exhausted to respond. In all the photos and those editorials, there is no mention of a single name of those who suffered or who died. Indian papers, journals and pamphlets were also capturing the extent of what was happening in Calcutta and the countryside and in quite a different way to Stevens. Artist and writer Chitta Prasad Bhattacharya was one. In November 1943, he published Hungry Bengal, a tour through Midlandport District. It contained individual sketches of those affected, along with a commentary of their lives. 5,000 copies of Hungry Bengal were printed, and nearly all were instantly confiscated by the British. I've been trying to get my hands on a copy for a while.
2: Uh, my name is Shona, Dr Shona D'Arter. I am primarily a curator, a writer and a sometimes broadcaster.
0: Luckily, Shona can help me.
2: In fact, it was only a few months ago that a colleague from Bangladesh said the first copy she'd ever found was at the British Library. Um that copy of Hungry Bengal in the
0: British Library. Yeah. I've got you... a PDF of it <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> My god. Is We've... it in English Bengali? Is in Bengali, right?
2: It's in English. Would you like to have a look? Shall we? (laughs) Let's
0: have a look, yeah. The drawings are swirling, intense black ink depictions of survivors of the famine and victims.
5: Oh, my God, look.
0: This is really sad. These are really disturbing pictures. There is an image of a man, but he really no longer looks like a man, and he has been eaten by what looks like a wolf, and he's being surrounded by vultures. And it is called Unhonoured and Unsung. And he says, it's actually quite emotional to see this. He says his name was Kishetra Mohan Naik. So he's saying that that's his name. These are incredibly powerful, aren't they? I mean, I really can, visceral, very visceral. You can see how they really connect with people. But there is such dignity in giving his name, he has nothing left mm-hmm. literally, totally not even his body. Yeah, but he, Chitra Prasad, gives him his dignity. Yeah, that is what is so moving. Really is that is the first name of a victim of the famine that I have seen to find it one of so many, is a reminder of how little we know of those who died. At the time their voice was censored and erased, maybe that's why we don't remember it as well as we should today. There are no memorials or museums or dedicated archives anywhere in the world to this humanitarian disaster. To investigate the Bengal famine isn't only about asking what caused it, which so much of academic and public debate has focused on, but also about remembrance. To recall the existence of Kashitra Mahan Naik and the others who died. To give them dignity and to say their names. Next time, I find old cassette tapes what clues do they hold about colonial responsibility and about what more could have been done?
1: If those food gains had been distributed to the countryside, good many deaths could have been saved. That's
0: next on 3 Million. <laughs> I'm Kavita Puri. The series producer was Anta Dean. You've been listening to 3 million, about the 3 million people who died in the Bengal famine 80 years ago. And to listen to the whole series, search BBC World Service, the documentary online, or wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
2: Neu und majestätisch gut. Probier jetzt den Hamburger Real Barbecue Bacon und den Hamburger Real Smoky. Nur für kurze Zeit bei McDonald's. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Timeless stories, exceptional storytellers. Discover all your favourite BBC radio dramas available to enjoy as audiobooks. John Moffat stars in Poirot's Finest Cases, a collection of gripping full-cast dramatisations based on the novels by Agatha Christie.
3: And what would be your ideal murder mystery, Poirot? A very simple crime. A crime with no complications.
2: A crime that was unimpassioned and teeming. Search for BBC Audio wherever you purchase audiobooks and start listening.